Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Coming up. My goal with this is to present it in this way where people can say, oh, wow, this is, there's something wrong here. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. And I'm Will Johnson. You're listening to The Daily Crime. On April 12th, 2021, first responders were called to a group home on a quiet street in Gilbert, Arizona, where they found a man washing away blood in the shower. As investigators tried to piece together what happened there, neighbors would eventually learn that a convicted killer had been released to live on their street. They agreed to that plea deal because they said, okay, it was a psychotic episode. Not that he's seriously, very seriously mentally ill, should never be on the streets again. They said this was a one-off, you know, he had a psychotic episode. So we agree, you know, the prosecutors decided to agree because it was pretty obvious that he had a psychotic episode, uh, that jail would not be the place for him. You know, they couldn't really, they don't really have the facilities to incarcerate someone who's that ill. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. We have a new podcast to tell you about on today's episode of The Daily Crime. Locked Inside is a six-episode series launching today. Here to tell us about it is Erica Stapleton, investigative reporter with 12 News in Phoenix, also the host of the podcast. Erica, thanks for being here. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate all the support with this. So, Erica, Will and I have been working closely with you and the team at 12 News for months, and we're excited that the first episode of this series is finally out. Can I have you start by telling us a little bit about this group home in Gilbert, Arizona that's at the center of this series? Yes. So Tilda Manor is the name of this specific group home in Gilbert that we've been profiling. It's licensed by the state of Arizona as a behavioral health group home. And this particular home is supposed to be providing 24-7 round-the-clock monitoring to all of the residents. So these residents can be people who maybe have been diagnosed with a mental illness or need some behavioral health help. And This home should be providing not only supervision, but treatment and services so these people can cope with any of the symptoms they might be experiencing. So the first episode of the series begins with first responders being called out to this group home, Tilda Manor, and they discover that a resident named Stephen Howells has been killed. Who was Stephen Howells? What were you able to learn about him while working on Locked Inside? Well, what happens to him is truly tragic, and what was even more tragic was that it was really hard to learn about this man because, you know, there were so many gaps in his timeline. And, you know, I've covered a lot of crime stories 
And, you know, sometimes we see vigils or people will write on social media, they'll, you know, push for a GoFundMe or some fundraising for a funeral, anything like that. And in this particular case, we didn't see anything for a long time when it came to Stephen Howells. And, you know, after doing a ton of searching, we finally found an obituary one day. And that's how we connected with Stephen's ex-wife, Nicole. And it might seem weird to go to an ex-spouse for something like this, but she was graciously willing to share her story and what she knew about Stephen Howells and how he came to live at this group home and how devastating it was to hear that he ultimately was killed there. And what we know about Stephen is that he was young, grew up in Hawaii, met his wife, Nicole, and they you know, were living this happy life. And then he started experiencing delusions and showed some symptoms of other diagnoses. So that ultimately led to them divorcing because that was something Nicole said she didn't know how to handle. It was something that Stephen was struggling to manage. And ultimately he went down this slippery slope that others might experience if they are, you know, dealing with a severe mental illness that it is oftentimes hard to find care and can be difficult to manage. So unfortunately, that or those were the circumstances that we came to learn about Stephen. And we think over the years, that could be why he was ultimately placed in the group home Tilda Manor and why he was there that morning. And Erica, it turns out that the suspect who was arrested on the day of the attack, a man named Christopher Lambeth, had been sent to the group home after another terrible crime years earlier. You know, think about it. The blood had dried and there they are. And he's in another room, you know, watching TV like nothing ever happened. And so, yeah, it's just as vivid in my mind, as, you know, now as it was then. It's just horrific. Do you think you did this because you were off your medication? No. Okay, you think it was just because you wanted to? Like I said, it was just personal problems. Okay. That I didn't want to bring up. Okay, but you don't think you're not being on your medication had anything to do with it? No. Okay. Okay. Not an insane thing to do. It's not because of my medication. I'm not going to reveal the details of that crime, but can you talk about this concept of guilty except insane that exists in Arizona and just a few other states and how it resulted in Christopher Lambeth living at this group home? So a lot of people might be familiar with not guilty by reason of insanity, but here in Arizona, we kind of have a flip of that. It's called guilty except insane. And... It basically means at the time of the crime, a person had a mental disease or defect of such severity that they did not know the criminal act was wrong. So a lot of times, you know, there are very few people that have this designation in Arizona, and it's oftentimes people who have committed murders, attempted murders, or extreme aggravated assaults that fall into this category. And the idea is to not necessarily send these people to prison, like you might see for other convictions for those same violent crimes, but to send them to Arizona State Hospital so they can receive treatment for whatever mental disease or defect they could be experiencing and potentially get to a point of stable remission where they could potentially be able to go back into the community. And that's, of course, what happened in this case where we have Christopher Lambeth, who was released to live in this group home. As you've investigated this case, what reactions have you heard from people living in the neighborhood around Tilda Manor? 
as you said, Reed, that's exactly what happened in Christopher Lambeth's case. He was found guilty except insane. And after serving part of his sentence at the state hospital, he was released into the community and wound up living at this Tilda Manor group home. And this is in a residential area. And in that particular community, group homes, you know, by town code are not supposed to, you know, stand out. They don't want this to be something that people, you know, point out or are aware of. They want it to blend in with the rest of the homes. So a lot of people on the street, we did a canvas of the neighborhood in the days after the killing. And most people were aware. They said, yeah, yeah, we know there's a group home down the road, but a lot of people thought it could have been, you know, people struggling with addiction. Um, no one knew that there was a man convicted of a truly violent crime living, you know, feet away from them in some cases. And when they heard the details of the killing at the group home, it was frankly, disturbing to a lot of them. A lot of these people are families. They have kids on the street. People ride their bikes up and down the street. I've been there. I spent a lot of time there. It's truly residential. You, you know, tons of people walking outside. There's a school just, you know, around the corner, around the block. So this is an area that, you know, wasn't expecting to have someone with such a violent past living next door to them, especially in secret. Erica, this story deals with so many issues, including mental illness, public sentiment regarding care for those with mental illness, the legal system, sentencing guidelines, and also who has a voice and a vote in deciding where someone might end up. So I think at this point, um, it would be very bene extremely beneficial for him to start gaining those other independent skills um, that he can start doing them on his own so he knows how to do them and so that he can survive as a functioning adult. And he's great with everything that we do together. We spend quite a bit of time together. So I really see his progress and what he's able to accomplish. That's actually Christopher Lambeth's sister speaking before the Arizona board that makes most of the decisions when dealing with cases like this. Erica, can you talk about that board a little bit, their decision-making process, and then some of those other major themes that run throughout the podcast? Yeah, and I should point out, too, that Christopher Lambeth's sister declined to talk with us for this podcast. But I think this paints, you know, the reality that a person who might be or might have a mental illness um, and be in this position of being treated at the state hospital, this doesn't just affect them. It affects caregivers. It affects people that are making these decisions. It affects their family members. It affects potential victims they could have had. And ultimately, at the end of the day, if they're being released into the community, this will affect the public who may or may not be aware that these sorts of things happen. So I think that goes, you know, one of the major themes that runs throughout this podcast is that these decisions can have a ripple effect and it might affect, you know, more than the people they're intended to affect. And you know, with the gaps in care that we've seemed to show throughout this, you know, our series, there could be a lot of people impacted by this that, you know, aren't necessarily intended to be impacted by this system. So I hope that's a message that really gets across is that choices have consequences. Will brought up this board, the Psychiatric Security Review Board, that currently has jurisdiction over violent offenders who pleaded guilty except insane. And the podcast will get into what the future of this board is going to look like. But stepping back, I think a lot of people might not know that when someone is sentenced to the Arizona State Hospital, 
it doesn't really work like a prison sentence. That's where this board comes in. Can you explain why this board was created? Yeah, so the board was created in the early 90s when the guilty acceptance stain statute was enacted in Arizona. And it's actually a very, it's technically part of the criminal justice system, but it's a very small portion of it. So in the latest data, there are only about 113 people under the purview of this board. So those would have been people that have been deemed guilty, except insane. And, you know, compared to the thousands that are incarcerated in Arizona prisons right now. So it's a very small population, but include some of the state's most violent offenders. So every decision this board makes is an important one. And the board is made up of mental health professionals, so psychologists, psychiatrists, there's usually someone with probation and parole, and then other community members that make up this five-person board that essentially looks at all of the cases of the people who have been found or deemed guilty except insane. And typically every two years, these people will go before the board as they're receiving treatment at the state hospital. And the board will, you know, look at, review everything, or they should, that's what it's intended to do, look over everything, make decisions on whether the person should receive more privileges at the hospital, whether there needs to be any plans in treatment or changes in treatment, and um, ultimately whether the person has been successful in their treatment and might have the opportunity to go live in the community. So people can either, you know, similar to prison, people might be sentenced to the board's purview for 10 years. After those 10 years, a person could be released um, and the board will make the decision whether they should continue receiving care in another capacity or if they should just be released, you know, like someone would be released from prison. Or if a person is sentenced to life or for a longer duration of time, then the board might you know, come to the decision to release someone into the community, but they would technically still be under the board's purview. So that was the case with Christopher Lambeth, is he had a 25-to-life sentence under or at the state hospital, but he had been living in the community for a few years, and technically he was still under the board's watch, even though he wasn't at the state hospital anymore. Again, the goal is to, you know, of this whole statute, is to get people to a point where they're no longer dealing with the symptoms or they can manage the symptoms of their serious mental illness and can function in the community and are able to go live in the community again where they're not necessarily posing a risk to themselves or to others. So the podcast takes a look at Christopher Lambeth's story and also this review board that allowed him to be released, but it also takes a close look at the way this particular group home, Tilda Manor, operated. Talk a little bit about your investigation to Tilda Manor. Well, it was a big one and What we learned along the way is that there are a lot of entities and agencies that are involved when it comes to mental health care um, and people that might be receiving resources from the state to get that mental health care. So Tilda Manor is licensed by the state, and it's in a community that has its own rules when it comes to group homes. It's in a neighborhood that has an HOA, and it has—so there's tons of these layers of, you know, let's call them governing bodies when it comes to— managing this group home. And what we discovered is that, you know, anytime we asked a question of the state or of, you know, any other entity or even trying to go to the group home itself, it seemed like we got a different answer. You know, people said, you know, we're responsible for just this, but you have to go to, you know, them for that. So what we realized is that this, you know, kind of has a huge fan 
of things, it fans out in so many different directions. So during the course of our investigation, we kind of went down all the different avenues to get as much information as we possibly could. And that included investigation reports. We came to learn that this particular Tilda Manor group home was well known to police. And we wanted to know, well, why are police responding here so often? And, you know, it raises questions about what care people are actually receiving in this home. We went to council meetings, we talked with neighbors, we talked with the mayor, and it was just this behemoth of files and content and, you know, all these things that we needed to review. So I think over the past several months, we've been able to look at everything and we have a better understanding now of what happened, um, you know, kind of the timeline that led up to this killing unfortunately, back in last April. And there are still some gaps, though. And we believe that there should, there should be answers, or at least someone should be looking at this and saying, hey, why, you know, why hasn't there been accountability in this particular area? Maybe that's something the state could look at to improve on. And one of the reasons we know as much as we do about the operations at this group home, particularly what was going on the day Stephen Howells was killed, is that you were actually able to get a hold of body camera footage. Yes, that's correct. And it essentially walks you through everything from when police first respond. Um, we listened to a 911 call that went out that ultimately drew police to the home that revealed a lot of details that were pretty disturbing and concerning and raised a lot of questions, again, about care that was being provided in this home. And the body camera footage is pretty clear in, you know, police arriving at the scene, they're talking with the employees. And at this point, they don't necessarily know that someone on the inside of the home needs help. It's, you know, I don't want to get into it too much. You can listen in on our first episode. But basically, there's a point in this body camera footage when they realize, oh, Stephen Howells needs help inside this group home. So it wasn't clear right away that, you know, this 911 call was a call for Stephen Howells. And it again raises questions as to how something like this could have happened in a home that is supposed to be providing 24 7 supervision. So it's pretty clear that this series is a lot bigger than just one specific story. You look at a handful of other cases throughout the podcast that, that don't necessarily involve Tilda Manor but raise some of the same questions as Christopher Lambeth's case does. Can you share one or two of those stories? Yeah, one that comes to mind is a guy named Kenneth Wakefield. He was also found guilty except insane, sentenced to, I believe, 10 years at the state hospital where he wound up meeting a woman he would then later marry. Her name was Trina Heisch. So both of them were in the state hospital, found guilty except insane for trying to hurt a family member. And they both went through you know, the course, as one does with the Psychiatric Security Review Board, and both were eventually released back into the community. And Trina was let out first. Kenneth Wakefield was released after, according to all of the records that we've seen. And once he got out, they were living together, and he wound up killing her and hurting their pets in a very, very severe way. And he was arrested he went through that process charged with murder in her case and animal cruelty and was ultimately convicted. And instead of going to the state hospital this time, he was actually sentenced to prison. So 
that story in and of itself is tragedy after tragedy, but it begs the question also that, you know, when people are under the board's watch and they're being treated at the state hospital, are they actually getting better? Are people getting to a point where they can and should be released into the community? Or is it kind of just going through the motions and, you know, not really receiving care? So we had heard reports from other family members and, you know, other people who have been or are familiar with this system that sometimes it doesn't always work. I will point out that there are cases where people do stick to their treatment plans and they have successfully gone on to live in the community. But the examples we found in which people, you know, were not successful in that endeavor raised a lot of red flags. I'll point out one other example too. Um, it was an unfortunate situation where a man wound up shooting, I believe, four people outside a club in Phoenix killing two of them. And, you know, one of his victims' family, or the family of one of the victims actually spoke out to one of my colleagues and said, you know, this process, you know, might be beneficial and it might be the right of a person who's been found guilty except insane to go before this board and earn privileges and potentially go into the community. But, you know, we also have a voice in this and we can say, hey, remember us, remember you know, our brother and son, he was a victim of this particular shooter. We don't think he should be released. So now they have this burden on them where they have to go before the board every two years or whenever there's a hearing called and kind of recount these details of this horrible case and say, you know, we don't want this person to be released, even though that's something, you know, under state law that this person, you know, potentially has a right to do. So, that goes back to what I was saying before, where I think a lot of these decisions and a lot of these cases have huge ripple effects that could affect families, victims, and the general community. So decisions carry a lot of weight. You cover a lot of crime stories, and we've had you on this podcast, also on our weekly show, True Crime Chronicles, a number of times. What about this story made you decide to spend so much time working on a podcast series? It was never enough. The day turns, I, you know, typically do the TV side of things, TV and digital, through my station. And, you know, since the day after the killing, I, you know, started doing, you know, went to the neighborhood, did as I normally do when, you know, we're tasked with reporting on something like this. And, you know, the more I pulled the thread, the more things were unraveling. So, Eventually, we were at a point we could do a story each and every day um, on TV, but sometimes that's about, you know, one and a half to two minutes. And I was just like, you know, we can't, there is not enough time to get into the details of this case and then get into the background. So with everything that we've been able to uncover, I felt it was better to take a holistic approach and take this huge mass of you know, documents and data and police reports and police video and witness interviews and victim interviews and just all this, all of these things that can make one, you know, pretty good case for how things didn't go as they should have gone. And my goal with this is to present it in this way where people can say, oh, wow, this is, there's something wrong here. And Hopefully, the right people will see it who can maybe make some decisions about how people with mental illnesses are treated and cared for in Arizona. All right. Thank you, Erica. Again, the first episode of Locked Inside is available now. Anyone listening to this can find it by searching for Locked Inside wherever you listen to The Daily Crime. Thanks, guys. 
Thanks so much again, Erica. We're really excited about the podcast, and thanks for listening to The Daily Crime. You can find us five days a week, Monday through Friday. For The Daily Crime, I'm Will Johnson, along with Reed Redmond.